Well, our scripture reading from this morning, fittingly, comes from Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, um, uh, most of which uh, Mark just read for us. And so I think that that's a good thing, um, because um, these are truths that we really need to hear, um, and they're really, really encouraging to us, uh, I think. So if you would, please turn there with me in your Bibles, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. If you're using your pew Bible, uh, those are on page 942. And so please stand with me for the reading of the word. So Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, uh, page 942 in the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord to us. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can have a seat. So earlier this week, uh, I woke up and I started to get my son James ready for breakfast, ready to start the day. And I go and find Whitney, and Whitney asked me, Tyler, so what do you think of the dress? And I have no idea what she was talking about. And she asked me if I had checked Facebook that morning. I hadn't, um, so I really had no idea what she was talking about, and so naturally, I went and uh, checked Facebook to try to see what this was, what the dress was, um, and so when I did, I almost immediately saw what she was talking about, and I'm sure that if you are on social media of any kind, you probably saw this uh, as well, so all over the place, people were posting this picture of this dress, uh, and they're weighing in on their opinions of what color it is, whether it's gold or white, or whether it's um, black and blue, um, or some other variation of colors, apparently. Apparently, people see this thing uh, in all kinds of different ways. Uh, so some thought it looked gold and white. Whitney and I did. Um, others thought it was blue and black. Um, and naturally, this led to an urgent uh, online debate to try to figure out what color this thing was. Apparently, it was a really busy week for everybody. Um, but what's really interesting about this, I think, is that so many people can look at the same thing, the same uh, dress, and they can see it differently. Uh, to Whitney and I, it looked gold and white. Um, to others, oh, you better believe it was blue and black. Um, but the dress does have actual colors. I think if I remember right, correctly, it actually is blue and black. Um, and so that means that when a lot of us looked at that, when a lot of us saw the dress, uh, either the photo, or our vision, or uh, the lighting in the room, something threw us off and led us to make the wrong conclusion, to see the wrong thing. 
And so that's a, that's a funny example, uh, one that I'm sure most of you probably hope you never see on your Facebook feed again. Um, but I think that we all have moments, maybe even seasons, when we don't see clearly, uh, when our vision, our outlook is off. Uh, we wonder from God and we forget who we are as Christ's people. We fail to consider how God views us, what God thinks of us, and instead we wrap our identity up uh, we wrap our value up and uh, other things, uh, things like raising the perfect kids, being the perfect spouse, um, having good health, uh, looking a certain way, uh, having um, financial security, other people's opinions of us, and a host of other things. And so in these moments, in these moments when we are forgetting who we are and finding our identity and worth, and things other than what God thinks of us, um, I think our sight needs to be corrected. Um, we need gospel-centered vision. We need to be reminded of who we are. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is something that we need every single day. I know that I do. And that's what I think that Romans 8, 31 to 39 does for us. It reminds us of what God has done what God is doing and what God will do for us in Christ. It gives us this clear gospel-centered sight, uh, something that we so desperately need. So that said, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, uh, verses 31 to 39. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 944. So it's Romans 8, 31 to 39 page 944 in the Pew Bible. Paul says here, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that's a good passage. Um, and right from the start, I think it's clear that we're catching Paul toward the end of a thought process. Uh, we know that, I think, because he starts the passage off by saying, what then shall we say to these things? So we need to figure out what these things are. Um, I think it's likely that Paul began this train of thought all the way back in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, which is uh, why we read that passage to start off the service this morning. Um, there and throughout the rest of chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul focuses on the rock-solid hope that we have as Christians, specifically that God has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus who died and was raised for us, that God will continue to conform us into Christ's image, and that God will one day, finally, forever, perfect us and will dwell with him for all eternity. Nothing can stop that from happening. 
God is absolutely, lovingly, graciously committed to it. And so as Paul writes about these truths, and we'll explore them further as we work through the passage, uh, he comes to the place in chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, where he seems to just erupt in praise, doesn't he? I mean, he asks a lot of questions here, but these are questions that have obvious, powerful, life-giving answers. Um, And as he does this, as he asks these questions, uh, I think at least three points come to the surface. So if you're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, one, God is for you. Two, God justified you and Jesus intercedes for you. And three, God loves you. Each of these points has powerful implications, and we'll explore those further as well as we work through the text. So that said, look with me again at verses 31 and 32 and point one in your outline. God is for you. So there in verse, in verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So that first question, if God is for us, who can be against us, is a really powerful one. I think it should lead us to the obvious conclusion that God is for us, so nobody can be against us. That in and of itself is powerful and encouraging, isn't it? Um, But I think before we can fully grasp uh, that truth, before we can fully grasp what Paul is saying and feel the weight of it, we need to answer a question that's not written in the text. Um, How do we know God is for us? How do we know that's true? Well, thankfully, I think that Paul gives us the answer right in verse 32 with the next question. We know God is for us because he's already proved it by sending his son for us all, by not withholding Jesus from us, but by giving him up for us all. And this act of giving Jesus up, it didn't simply involve God sending Jesus to earth uh, to teach us better morals, to teach us how to be better people and how to live better lives. No, giving up Jesus meant that God sent his son to earth to die uh, for us in our place. You see, Paul starts off Romans, he starts off this letter with some really bad news. Uh, we're all sinners. Every single one of us, we're all guilty. We've all broken God's law and are justly under his wrath. Paul puts it this way in chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's really bad news. We've sinned against the God of the universe. We've rejected him as our king and gone our own way. And here's even worse news. Our sin has to be paid for. God can't just overlook it and shove it under the rug. That wouldn't be just. That would mean he's not God. But here's the really good news. This is the best news that you're ever going to hear in your whole life. This is the gospel. God lovingly and graciously sent Jesus to pay our penalty and pay our penalty he did. He died on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath all the way to the very bottom uh, so that our sin was done away with. God's wrath was appeased and wonderfully, God raised Jesus from the dead three days later, vindicating him and showing that he approved of what Jesus did. Listen to Paul explain this again 
and uh, Romans 5, verses 6, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, that is, declared not guilty but righteous, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So through Christ's death and life, we're justified by God. We're declared righteous, not guilty. We're saved from the wrath of God and we're reconciled to him. And if that isn't good enough, this justification isn't something that we have to earn. In fact, we can't earn it. We've already proven that. We've done nothing but break God's law. No, this is a gift that can only be received by faith. Paul says this in chapter 3, verses 28, or verse 28. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And again in um, five, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So step back for a second and see how staggering all of this is. Every single one of us has earned the cosmic death penalty from God. But God, the offended party, took action to save us from the sin we committed against him. And he did this by sending his son to come and bear the full weight of his wrath for sin and die for us on the cross. And he showed his approval of that sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead. And the promise for us now is that if we will repent, turn from our sins and believe this gospel, we'll be saved. We'll be justified, declared not guilty. Does that feel like a weight off of your shoulders today? I think it should. Not guilty. I think we know how guilty we are. We know that we're sinners. But God has done everything necessary to remove that from us, to reconcile us to himself. That is really good news. We've earned wrath, but we get salvation. We've earned war, but we get peace. John Owen puts it this way. This is the great mystery of the gospel and the blood of Christ, that those who sin every day should have peace with God all their days. So, Christian, is God for you? You better believe he is. And if he's for you, nothing can be against you. Nothing can condemn you or separate you from his love. Listen to Ray Ortland reflect on this. He says, do you realize that God is for you and all that he is doing in this world right now, whatever that means for you at this time in your life? We are often confused and sinful and defeated, but God is at work for us. You can put your name right here in verse 31. God is for your name. And if God is for you, then God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. And how encouraging is that? Like, you may have noticed your blank spaces in the outline that I left. I did that on purpose. And this quote from Ray Orland is what prompted me to do that. If you're a Christian here today, go ahead and write your name there. Soak that truth in. God is for you, and he gave up his son for you so that you could live. And if you're with us this morning, and if you're not a Christian, hear the gospel message. This is 
great news for sinners, fantastic news for weary people. God has done everything necessary to bring you in a right relationship with him. And you can't work to earn this justification. You can't work to earn this salvation. Uh, This is a gift from God that you receive by grace through faith. So would you receive it? Um, Let today be the day of salvation for you. Repent and believe this good news, the gospel. If you have any questions about that or if you'd like to talk to me more about that, I'll be available. Come and grab me after the service. Uh, We can even set up a time sometime later this week to grab coffee and talk about this. Um, But I would love to share this message with you and to see what you think. But as Paul's second question here indicates, uh, since God gave up his son for us, we can fully expect him to, with Christ, graciously give us all things. So the question here is, what in the world is Paul referring to when he says all things? To answer that question, I think we need to go back to verses 28 and 29 of this chapter, of chapter 8 in Romans. There, Paul says that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then he explains why that's true. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in other words, Paul's saying that for Christians... All things work together for their good because they're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, God's Son. So all things refers, I think, to everything God gives us to make us like Jesus, to conform us to Jesus' image, to prepare us for eternity with Him. And I think all things functions the same way in verse 32 in our text for this morning, although eternal blessings could also be in view, not just things that happen to us here. But do you see what Paul's saying? God is for you. He sent his son to die for you, and he'll give you everything that's necessary for you to be made like him. This is why Christians have the unique, supernatural ability to rejoice in their sufferings. I mean, let's be honest. It makes absolutely no sense to rejoice when we suffer. That sounds crazy. But it makes total sense if this life isn't all there is. If the God of the universe is using suffering and trials to prepare us for eternity. And he is. Listen to Paul in chapter 5, verses uh, 3 to 5 again. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Now let's be clear here. I don't think Paul's calling us to literally celebrate when terrible things happen to us or others. No, we live in a fallen world, and we can mourn when evil rears its ugly head. But Paul is saying, though, that when we suffer, we can have this deep-seated joy because we know that through trials, God is transforming us. He's working for our good. You see, he's so committed to us He is so for us, so for you, that he refuses to leave you as you are. He won't do it. And he uses trials and suffering to accomplish something wonderful in us, endurance, character, and hope that doesn't put us to shame. If we're honest, I think this is where we really need gospel-centered vision this morning. God has done, is doing, and will do great things for us through Christ, but we often fail to see that, don't we? The circumstances of life may have prompted you 
to wonder whether God is for you, whether he'll really give you all things for your good. In the face of a job loss, financial hardships, abuse, abandonment, cancer, death, and a host of other evils, it may seem like God's absent, like he's anything but for us. Oh, but Christian, hear this today. God's greatest goal for you isn't for you to have your best life now. He wants something far, far better for you. Christ-likeness, eternity with him, true joy that has roots that run way deeper than anything this world can offer you. So when you get bad news, when you feel like a failure, when you lose your job, when others hate you, when you worry about the future, remember this. The God of the universe is for you, and he is working for your good. Hmm. I mean, do we believe that? Don't you want that kind of gospel-centered vision? Man, I do. I need that every single day. I need to be reminded that God is for me, uh, that he'll graciously, with Christ, give me all things, and so do you. But we also need to know that as believers, God justified us, and Christ intercedes for us. So look with me at verses 33 and 34, chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So in both of these questions, who shall bring a charge against God's elect um, and uh, who is to condemn? I think that Paul is looking ahead to the future judgment, uh, and he's assuring his readers and us that we won't be condemned on the day of judgment. And he gives us two really good reasons why that's true. First, we won't be condemned on the day of judgment because God has justified us. He's already declared us not guilty but righteous. The judgment has already been given. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, it's a judgment that's miraculously in our favor. But again, lest we go off the rails here, let's not forget that this isn't something that we earn. Uh, no, as Paul says in chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So justification is a gift from God. And if we receive it by faith in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, uh, we have uh, sure, unshakable hope. The word right there that's translated propitiation, it refers to the fact that through Christ's death, not only did he earn forgiveness of our sins, not only did he do away with our sins, but he also satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. That's wonderful news for us. And because those things are true, that's what can eventually lead Paul to conclude in chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So those who trust in Jesus have been declared not, right, or not guilty but righteous by God. They have peace with God and they stand secure in the Lord's grace and have the sure, solid hope that one day they'll be glorified, fully perfected, made complete 
Condemnation is nowhere in that picture. Nowhere. I was thinking about that even as we were singing this morning. Um, The song before the throne of God above is a really powerful one. I mean, listen to just the first portion portion of that song again. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Condemnation is not in that picture at all. So, we won't be condemned on the day of judgment because God has justified us and also because Jesus died, was raised, is at God's right hand and is interceding for us. Truths that we just celebrated by reading uh, that portion of Before the Throne of God above. But here's where chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, again, are helpful. I mean, do you see how this connection is being made from chapter 5 to chapter 8, this great train of thought that Paul's weaving together? Like, remember in those verses that Paul affirms that through Christ's death, we're justified by God, we're saved from his wrath, and we're reconciled to him. We're also saved, Paul says, by Jesus's life. His death was essential for us to be saved, but so was his resurrection. There, God vindicated him and showed that he approved of his sacrifice. So now, because Jesus was raised raised from the dead, we have the sure hope that one day he'll raise those of us who trust Jesus too. But that's not all Jesus did. Jesus is also at God's right hand and interceding for us even now. So after Jesus' resurrection, Luke tells us in Acts that he appeared to the apostles during 40 days and uh, spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And later, Jesus ascended into heaven where Hebrews 1, 3 tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus accomplished what he set out to do. Death didn't defeat him. He reigns victorious and is even now interceding for us, pledging for, or forever pledging on our behalf that we are forgiven and that our sins have been dealt with. That is really good news. Condemnation? Not a chance. As Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. So this helps us gain gospel-centered vision in at least two big ways, I think. For one, and, and this one might be a little obvious, it means that we don't have to live in fear of condemnation. The world, the devil... And even our own selves can viciously and painfully remind us of our sin and the punishment that we deserve. And these accusations can cripple us if we let them. But let's be honest. I mean, we all do deserve condemnation. That's what we've earned. But here's the marvelous truth. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He absorbed God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. And by grace through faith in Christ, we are righteous before God, justified. There's no place for fear of condemnation there. And so if you're trusting for Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and if you're constantly worried that God is just waiting to judge you and give you what you really deserve, look to Jesus. Look to the judgment that God has already delivered and find hope and rest for your weary soul. If this is a struggle for you, and I'll be honest, I've struggled with this one before. 
uh, let me encourage you to make a conscious effort to remind you every day, uh, to remind yourself every day who you are in Christ. Uh, I have a quote in my office. It's uh, actually hanging above the center of my desk. It's by a guy named J.I. Packer. Um, He says this, um, and I've used this quote for this purpose of reminding myself of who I am in Christ. Packer says, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. I originally saw that in one of Chris's blog posts and decided to jot it down, and that has been really helpful for me, and I hope that it is for you. And if you didn't get a chance to and would like to write that quote down, let me know and I can get it to you. Um, So this means that we don't have to live in fear of condemnation, but it also means that we can be vulnerable and honest about our sin. Confession of sin is one of those things that's really difficult for us to do, but it's ultimately for our good for our growth in Christ-likeness. I mean, for starters, it shows us that we're really serious about killing the sin in our own lives, uh, that we recognize where we need to grow and that we want other people to come alongside us and help hold us accountable. But we often fail to open up about our sin because we're afraid others are going to think differently of us and we value their opinion more than God's opinion. And have you ever done this in your home group? Have you ever sat there and known that you have a sin that you're struggling with and that you could use accountability with or you could use help and you haven't said anything because you're worried about what other people are going to think of you? I mean, has that ever happened to you? I've done that before. Um, But we have the approval of the God of the universe We don't have to work hard to save face in front of other people when it comes to confession because we already have the Lord's approval. So let me challenge us all. Be appropriately open about your sin in your home groups this week and ask others to come alongside you as you seek to kill the sin in your life and grow in Christ-likeness. So God is for you, God justified you, Jesus intercedes for you, and finally, God loves you. Look with me at verses 35 to 39 here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's celebrated the fact that no one can be against God's people. No one can condemn them. And now he makes a similar point when he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The correct answer is no one. But the one thing that's striking here, I think, is that Paul includes suffering, uh, severe suffering, among the things that can't separate us from Christ's love. He mentions things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And he even quotes from Psalm 44, 
uh, where God's people suffer greatly even though they've remembered God and they've been faithful to God's covenant. Um, One commentator, a guy named Tom Schreiner, he addresses this and he says, the Old Testament context of Psalm 44 is instructive because the psalmist laments the suffering of the righteous who have not abandoned God's name and yet are subjected to humiliation, defeat, and mockery. What Paul affirms in Romans is that such mockery and, and suffering are inevitably the lot of Christians. That may sound like bad news to you this morning, but let me assure you that it's not. This is, again, where we need gospel-centered vision. Suffering is not meaningless. It's not random. What texts like Romans 5, 3 to 5, what Romans 8, 28 and 29 affirm is that God uses all things, even suffering, especially suffering, to conform us into Christ's image. They surely can't separate us from God. His loving hand is there with us. No, it's, it's quite the opposite. God uses those things for our everlasting, eternal good. He's using them to prepare us for that day when we'll be with Him in heaven, when we'll see our Savior face to face and be made like Him. So, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us because nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can defeat us. Nothing can break that bond. Severe suffering can't do it. Death can't do it. Life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth. And if Paul left anything out, not anything in all creation can do it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He's justified you by grace through faith in Christ, and he's one day going to fully, finally, forever perfect you. Brothers, sisters, God is for you. He's for us, and he's not letting go. We could make a number of points of application here, but let me just name a few. One, I hope that this is encouraging to you. God loves you. Maybe you really need to hear that today. Maybe you're going through a severe trial. Maybe you're really hurting, and you're wondering why certain things have happened to you. You're wondering if God is for you. You're wondering, where is the love of God in this? Well, if that's you and you're a believer, take up hope. God is for you. He does love you, and he is working for your good. It may hurt. It may be more than you can bear. But his loving hand isn't going to let you go through it all. Two, this should motivate us to love and obey God. Uh, Tim Keller has said, and I love this quote, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The fact that we're righteous before God does not in any way give us license to sin against God and disobey Him. I mean, when you see the love of God presented in a passage like this, like accepting that and disobeying him, it's ridiculous. Like it doesn't make any sense to do that. That's not the natural response that we should have. That's not go- what God calls us to. Rather, these truths, the love of God is a motivator, should be a motivator 
for obedience. Uh, It should lead us to want to follow God with all of our hearts. And so if there's an area in your life where you have been running from God, if there is a, a sin in your life that you haven't confessed that you need to take to the Lord, do that today. You have a loving Father ready to receive you. You have a great high priest in heaven who is interceding for you. So run to him. And then three, this should motivate us to share the good news, to share the gospel. God loves us. No one can condemn us or separate us from his love. Why then would we not, at great personal risk to ourselves, share the gospel with our neighbors, with our family members, with our coworkers? I mean, what's the worst that can happen to us? We have God on our side. God is for us. And we have the best news in the world to tell people. We need to share it. This should motivate us to want to share it. Nobody can condemn you. So we can share that good news. But I think that this can, for some of us, go beyond our neighbors next door, our family members, and our coworkers. God could possibly, I don't know, He could possibly be calling some of us in this room to be missionaries overseas. There are billions of people in this world who are lost, millions who have never even heard the gospel. So it's possible, I think, that God is calling some of us maybe to risk our lives to share this message. You know, I, um, uh, a while ago, with a, a few people here from Bethel, I watched this conference. It was a live, a live conference done over the internet. It was um, um, by a group called Cross, and the conference was called Undaunted. And what the conference was is it was geared toward college students, um, and it focused on unre- unreached people groups. And the encouragement was uh, for these students to consider whether or not God is calling them to be frontier missionaries. Frontier missionaries meaning missionaries going to the unreached places. And a few things from that conference really stuck out to me I thought were really powerful. Um, But just one of those, uh, speaking of frontier missions, uh, this context of unreached people groups, one of the speakers said something like, and I won't get this quote exactly right, but he said something like, The unreached people groups that are still unreached are like that for a reason. Like They're hard to reach. The easy places are taken. Some of us need to go. These people need to hear the gospel. And you know what? It may cost us our lives to do that. But here's the thing. Here's what Romans 8, 31 to 39 tells us. It's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Do we believe it? Do we see his great love for us today? Is this, is this vision that we can really grasp a hold of? Is this sight that we really need? I think that it is. And I think that this is wonderful news for us. This should be super encouraging for every single one of us in this room. And again, if you're in this room today and if you're not trusting in Christ, this is the best news that you're ever going to hear in your whole life. 
The Lord has done everything necessary to save you from your sin. And all that he requires of you is that you feel your need for him, that you run to him in faith and forsake your sin. That's wonderful news. And he'll save you. He'll justify you. He'll declare you righteous. And you'll have the sure, unshakable hope that you'll be made perfect one day. That's a hope that we as Christians here today have. We have that sure hope that one day we'll be made fully like Christ. So, God is for us. God justified us and Jesus intercedes for us. And God loves us with an unbreakable love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the encouragement that you provide us from it. Um, You tell us things like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You tell us things like, you're for us. We can't be condemned. Uh, You love us. We can't be separated from your love. And so, God, we celebrate that today. We thank you for your many benefits, most of all, for giving us Christ, for saving us from our sin, for giving us yourself. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to have clear sight. You would help us to have clear sight this week, uh, even as we leave this place and are immediately encountered with uh, a thousand other things that fight for our affections, that fight to cloud our vision. Help us, Lord, to see you clearly and to be reminded of who we are uh, in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.